Hello, Gabby here, and welcome back to The Midpoint. Today is one of those special times when my guest joins me in my podcast room to chat all things midlife in person. And this week's guest is one of those people it just feels really good to be around. I'm chatting to television presenter Alex Jones. Alex went from being a contestant on Davina McCall's reality show Prickly Heat in the late 90s to hosting one of the biggest nightly shows on British television. She's hosted The One Show since 2010, a huge achievement, but she's also a mum to three young children, Teddy, Kit and Annie. And Alex has been very open about her experiences with IVF and having children later in life. As Alex and I are both in the business of raising sons, we're also going to be chatting to a writer and journalist, Yuju Asika, whose book Raising Boys Who Do Better is out now. So whether you're a parent, grandparent, uncle, aunt or godparent to young boys, or you just know some, this one is for you. Let's get cracking. Well, I am delighted to say that she's not only come on the midpoint, but Alex Jones has come to the midpoint. I am here, Gabby, and I am enjoying it. It's like being in a spa. I'm hoping that there'll be a lovely massage and a facial after this. I could have arranged that for you. I mean, it's quite a setup here. Well, we haven't had too many people up here, but ironically, I just thought about this. One of the people who came to do the podcast here was Adrian Childs. No way! Another incarnation of the brilliant one show. Well, Well, the original incarnation. this is the even more weird thing. Yeah. My next door neighbour. Oh, this is all a little bit incestuous, isn't so it? So I'll just tell you a quick story. Yeah. When I first moved to London, unbeknownst to me, I rented the flat right underneath Adrian. No. Yes. And one day, on a Monday, it was Bin's day, and it was this sort of apartment block, and yeah. you would put your bin outside yeah. the door. And the lovely sort of concierge guy would come along and then put it in the big, you know, I know. (laughs) Very posh. It's Chiswick. (laughs) And then I closed the door. I'd only just moved in. I let the door shut and realised I couldn't get back in. And I was in my pyjamas. And who, of course, comes down the corridor to congratulate me on the new job? Adrian Childs. He was very gracious. Very lovely. In your pyjamas. In my pyjamas. That's extraordinary. Yes. I mean, we talk about it often, but actually, he's a lovely neighbour. Yeah, well, he was great on here as well. He was great. I listened to him. Loves a chat. And I know you do too. And that is why you are so good at the job you do. Well, thank you, Gabby. But I have to say, I listen to this podcast a lot. And it's quite nice to be here in the beating heart of the midpoint. Exactly. And now I can imagine where all these conversations have happened. Yeah, well, you're 46 years old. I am. Now. So, you know, I think if you live to be 92, but is that a good innings for you or would you? So the way I look at it is I'm going to make 100. Yeah. I mean, I probably won't, but I think everybody's got 100 in them. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, if yeah. you eat the right stuff, yeah. not drink too much. Yeah. Although, love a bit of wine. Um, but she gen- arrived today, by the way, at 10.30 <laughs> in the morning with a bottle of what I thought was water. I thought, oh, that's no. nice. Alex is handing me some water. No. Which maybe she doesn't think we get it out here. And it was Welsh gin. At it 10- was. Yeah. It's I, signature gin, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about drinking it. But maybe it's a little, even for the, for the shires, it a might be a bit early. A little bit early. Maybe after the record. So going back to, um, we're not going to go back to the, the very beginning of uh, the one show and how that all was, but there's a there's a kind of, um, I'd say, a gap. If you look at your kind of CV on Wikipedia, you know, there's there's a TV appearance, I think, in 99. In, uh, <laughs> uh, was it a show that Davina was hosting? Yes. The Sky. Yes. And then there's this big gap. And then the one, I mean, literally, you came kind of on, from obscurity to a lot of people to host one of the biggest shows on TV. Mm. Of course, you've been plugging away in Wales, mm. doing, you know, your stuff and learning your trade. But you were thrust into the limelight. I was. I mean, in terms of, you know, the planning, I mean, it didn't happen by accident, as you know, and I've got great admiration for you because you do put so much prep and, you know, you are so prepped when you do your job. You know, you like me know that it's not something that you can just rock up and do. And for anybody who respects their job, that is not how you go about it. So there was 10 years from that weird appearance with Davina where she was my invigilator for my uh, final exams in Magaluf. And so I did two exams in Magaluf, my finals, um, whilst I was filming this game show. And Davina was the host. And so she was with me in this gymnasium in Spain at the same time as my sort of friends back at home and Abras with the university would take it their finals. And Davina was with me saying, okay, you've got 15 minutes so left on the paper. Yes, the absolutely. <laughs> That's extraordinary. Um, and all I wanted to do was be Davina. I thought, oh my gosh, she is a goddess. She's so brilliant at a job. 
And I thought, hmm, that's the job for me. But coming from South Wales, I was terrified to say that out loud. Yeah. I mean, my parents would literally have gone, sorry, what? So you what wanted did they to do think what? you wanted to do then? Um, I think they thought I just wanted to work in telly. Which was what I would say. Right, okay. Oh, yeah, might be a researcher. I mean, it turns out I was a terrible researcher. Um, <clears throat> so that wasn't my calling card. So it was sort of 10 years of after graduating of plugging away children's telly, holiday shows, some sport. I mean, I know that's surprising. What did you do in sport? Extreme sport. Oh. Well, actually, when I got the phone call to say I'd got the one show job, I was doing a skateboarding competition in Brighton. <laughs> Not taking part, I should add. But it was a sort of a, an extreme sport segment for Channel 4 at the time. So, yeah, lots of different things. So when the phone call came and that was all weird, somebody just randomly called up from the one show and said, we've seen a bit of your show mm -hmm. reel online and can you come and have an interview? And I assumed it would be for, a, mm -hmm. you know, a reporter role, mm -hmm. which I was thrilled at. Mm -hmm. And so I went and I met them and I'd come straight actually from a wakeboarding competition <laughs> in North Wales. And I was on my way to a water ski competition <laughs> afterwards. And I turned up in these sort of baggy jeans and a vest, you know, because that was kind of hello, the uniform. Saints. I know. Hello, <laughs> Nicole Appleton. And they looked at me and thought, oh, that was not quite what we were expecting. I said, it's OK. I've got a Karen Millen dress in the bag. I'll whip it on now and then we'll do the screen test. I've got test. hair straighteners. Do and you I, see? I've got and I'm, I transformed. a bit of bronzer and I'll be fine. Yeah, I did, you know, transformed into sort of BBC One acceptable and did loads of screen tests. But anyway, eventually got the job. But, but what was frustrating for me at the time was even though I was thrust into the limelight and that was a big shock. Mm. I mean, I was not ready for that. Because it was sort of a big show and mm. Christine and Adrian had done such a brilliant mm. job, were, to be they fair. They were kind of real tabloid fodder as well. Real tabloid fodder. And thankfully, we've sort of stepped back from that yeah. a bit. But it was because they were so brilliant, actually. And the pairing was genius. Yeah. And I used to love watching yeah. them. Yeah. But it wasn't, you know, lots of people said, my God, where's she come from? I mean, how the mm. hell can she be presented? But actually... There was a lot of hard graft behind that. And when the phone call came, I felt ready. I thought, well, I've done loads of live telly. I can read an autocue. Brilliant. That you, know? you had no sense of imposter syndrome or anything like that. That you, And that it was clear that you had a real confidence. Not... Well, I mean, I did think and I still think because this is me. They're going to find out soon that they've chosen the wrong person here and I'll be sent okay, back over that seven we're, bridge. Are we, 12 or, uh, we are 12 years yeah, in, I but I, I don't think he'll ever leave me. It's just the way I've been brought up. I always think, oh my God, they will. They'll send me back. Um, but in terms of, you know, prep for the job, I felt prepped. I felt I can do this mm. job. But what I wasn't ready for, of course, was the vast difference between broadcasting to you know, 30,000 people on S4C and then, you know, three or four million on BBC One. Every single night. And because there was quite a lot of controversy at mm. the beginning around how Adrian and Christine had left and, you know, we'd come in, myself and Jason Manford. My God, it feels like another lifetime mm. ago. But, you know, there was a lot of press interest and that's the bit. I wasn't ready for that. Neither mm. were my parents. My mother said, oh my God, I feel like I need to put lipstick on all the time because there's always a photographer nearby. <laughs> Really? And so these, this is kind of still, I, I was talking about this the other day where paparazzi now, there must be a lot of unemployed paparazzi because people control their own stuff so much on social yeah. media. There's not as much of a demand, I no. don't think, for those. But you still get, you know, those paparazzi secret shots. So you did have a, at the beginning a yeah, bit of the beginning, intrusive kind of behaviour. I mean, you? I remember looking for somewhere to live and I had no idea where I was going in London. I mean, I was driving my little mini, Minnie Mouse, as she was called, mum in the passenger seat. And we were just sort of following, I don't know, I mean, it was probably the car sat now. It was, wasn't even Google Maps, was it then? I don't know. And she was in a right panic. And then we had this guy on a moped behind us, you know, like old school paparazzi. And in the end, I stopped the car and I said, look, come with us if you want. But can you just lead the way? And then when we get there, you can take some photos because I don't know where I'm going. And Amazing. you probably do. So that's what we did. I mean, we turned it around and used it to our advantage. And you mentioned your mum there. I don't know your mum at all. I've seen I've seen pictures of her and stuff on your social media. She's a beautiful woman. She, I, we've got a lot of kind of mutual friends that we work with, and they talk very highly of her in terms of her influence on mm. you. She's a she's a big influence even now, isn't she? Into absolutely the decisions you make and the confidence you get from from work. Yeah, I think every decision I make or every choice 
there's always mum's voice in the back of my mind. And I don't think that will ever change. I mean, her work ethic is second to none. That's where you get it from. Oh, 100%. And she... She's just the most incredible woman. I mean, I can only, you know, I can't run a house like mum. She lost a mum when she was 15 and homemaking became her thing. Mm. I mean, she wanted to be a buyer for one of the big department stores and she got the job. But then they lost her mum. They had a few years previously, but she thought, you know, it's my job to raise my little brother. He was only eight. Her older sister had gone to medical school. So she was there running the family business, running the house and looking after the brother. Mm. So homemaking became her thing. Mm. And she then was CEO of her house. Basically. She was and she still is. She's still <laughs> the matriarch. And also, you know, she then got a job as a cashier in a bank and ended up as a manager. Everything mum does, she gives it 110%. And I mean, I don't do that. I try because her voice is in the back of my mind. But she really, really gives everything so, her all. So she was supportive as, because I think you sometimes, uh, you know, I know certain friends and people you meet who are trying to juggle careers mm. and children and families. And sometimes you feel that there's a mother in the background that's not quite as, you know, would quite like that person to just back off the career or just push on with the career and, you know, get somebody else to bring up the kids. And you're, mm. you're doing what a lot of us try and do is just kind of do everything, you know. Yeah. And and she, she was always supportive of that. She, she Absolutely. Was, I mean, even now she'll say some days, you know, do you think you're trying to do too much? She'll worry in that way. But she always said to my sister and I, you both need to find something you love. Mm -hmm. Because she said, I didn't have that option. I made the best of it. But I want you to do something that you enjoy doing because then life will be easier. Just wise. And it'll be interesting. Mm. And yeah, I mean, the third child, she was a bit like, wow, okay, <laughs> here we go then. <laughs> And I remember she turned to my dad and she said, Alan, get ready because there's another one coming. <laughs> we're on our way down the M4 again <laughs> and we're going we're to be whizzing down there to help out. You know, and they've just been, and even though they do live in Cardiff and the M4 is between us, you know, they make the M4 disappear. I mean, even in the you know, early 70s, mum and dad, they still make a concerted effort to come and help out with the children or to just spend time with the children because they help my sister a lot and they want it to be fair. You know, mm. it was my choice to move away, mm. to be fair. But they, you know, mum and dad are, they're like superhuman. Oh. They are fantastic. Well, I think that is sometimes you look at families and, you know, when they're far away, you think how they're going to actually kind of be part of their lives, mm. never mind the help and support you get. But for them to also, they will get so much back from you know seeing your yeah. kids grow up. Now, your kids are quite young still. I'm at the other end, you know, kind of they're moving out in weeks uh, or one of them is. And you're still very much kind of mm. in sleep deprivation territory, aren't you? Very much. I mean, last night, Annie woke at half past 11 and went back to sleep at 20 to 4. Oh, my goodness. But... On the other side of the coin, you know, you were saying about raising boys and all the rest of it. And you think, you know, have I left it too late? You know, is there time left? And that I, I'm worried about that already. I think how many years now until Ted might go to uni or might go traveling for a year? And I think, Charlie, we've only got maybe another three Christmases where... You know, Ted believes in Santa. Or you know, you start. I thought he's going to say till he leaves. I think no, 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 no. He's so, not going anywhere. So Ted is um, Ted six, six, six. Uh, Kit's four, and Annie will be two at the end of August. Okay, so you, so you are forty six. Yeah. So it's really great that you're on full stop, but it's also really good because I've had a lot of people talking to me about you need somebody on who didn't start their family until around forty because. Um, I've been talking about empty nests and a lot of the listeners are like, well, hang on a minute. I'm nowhere near empty nest. I'm yeah. in the midlife and I'm kind of like navigating, you know, young kids still. But isn't it brilliant that we all are different mm. at around the same age? Mm. You know, we've we've all been able to make choices and mm. those choices weren't there for our parents. Yeah. You know, they were sort of following a set set of rules, whereas mm. That became more flexible for mm. our generation, didn't it? Yeah. And you could make choices. I mean, at the end of the day, Charlie and I didn't meet until I was 33. He was 32. He's a toy boy. Um, <laughs> oh, you cougar, you. I know, I know. <laughs> but he does keep reminding me. <laughs> the year. Yeah, there's, you know, there's a year between us, though. Well. Um, but I think, and then he was hopeless. He couldn't make a decision. He's a Kiwi, so laid back. Laid back. <laughs> I mean, so laid back you know 
in flip-flops or jandals, as he calls them, in January. You know, am I going back to New Zealand? Am I staying in London? And therefore, we didn't get married until five years after that. And he says now, oh, I don't know why we just didn't get married soon. I was like, well, I think we're looking at the reason, Charlie, aren't we? <laughs> Um, and I could have proposed to him, but you know, Gabby, I'm traditional yeah, to a you point. Want to keep some I, kind I of, wanted yeah. the romance. I was like, I want him to propose. <laughs> and then, anyway, eventually he did. And so, you know, and then we started having children. But you are away. very, you're very useful. I'm not kind of blowing smoke up your bum or anything, but you know, you look a lot younger uh, than your age. You're oh, very God. useful. You've got a very useful energy. So, and you could be absolutely knackered having young kids, but you know, you, you'd seem to have boundless amounts of energy and and be able to kind of do all of that. But I think, you know, I mean, age, I've always thought as age has just been a number. Mm. And especially if you're in a job where you want to be, mm. like the both of us are fortunate to be, but it takes a little while to find your feet sometimes in that industry. And, you know, just things are pushed on a bit, you know, yeah. and then Obviously, I left Cardiff or all my ex-boyfriends lived. <laughs> and there was a whole new pool of people in London, all Gabby. All my ex-boyfriends. <laughs> and then, you know, so Charlie and I left, you know. There's blue plaques all over Cardiff. <laughs> Used to be a boyfriend. Used to go out with them. Oh, God. Um, and then she arrived in London. And then I arrived. And rubbed then, her hands together you know, and said. Went to a fancy dress party. Met this lovely tall Kiwi who I thought was, well, ridiculous, really, the first time I met him. But I knew there was something about him. But, you know, he's just not, he's not like us. He is not somebody who feels like they need to make decisions and move things forward. I'm very much that person. I'm like, but what are we going to do about this? You that, married that. the yang to your ying yes, or the other way around, whichever absolutely. way it is. Absolutely. And so, you know, it works. I mean, obviously, he frustrates the hell out of me. But I love him to death. But then we, you know, we've ended up with a one-year-old at forty-six. <laughs> this is where we are, Gabby. And when I when I was pregnant with Ruben and Lois, about to have them, um, I was thirty-two, and there was a woman under the same obstetrician as me who was having twins. who was forty-six, right? And I remember thinking, because I was knackered at thirty-two, carrying two babies, and I'm thinking, she in a few months' time, when she's had those babies, she's going to be exhausted. And actually, when I got to forty-six, I kind of had a moment thinking about that, thinking, yeah, I could do that now. I feel, I feel just great, you know. Yeah. So, and I'm sure she did absolutely fine but at that age I looked ahead and thought late 40s looked you know like a different whole kind of ball game but yeah. when you get there you actually feel if you're looking after yourself you don't feel that bad at all mother nature's just really cruel that that it's harder to get there to get yeah. pregnant and to be in that because if we are going to live to 100 as I think we've both agreed we are 100 you know our, our kids will <laughs> our kids will be in their 50s anyway so you know it's we've fine. had enough time with them then <laughs> I think so and the thing is you know I'm very much a kind of well we are where we are you know, and I think you adapt, you know, as, as human beings, we adapt very well to the situations we find ourselves in. And this is the situation we found ourselves in. I wouldn't change it for the world. I mean, of course, it's hard work. Everybody who's raised a child or four children or however many knows it's hard. But actually, you get so much from it, mm. you know, in terms of what they give back, the clarity it gives you, the energy that you have to find on a daily basis. I mean, I feel like having the three of them makes me a way better person now than I was a decade ago. Mm. Well, being less selfish, more selfless is, yes. is a good thing, isn't it? And, you um, know, I mean, Charlie and I were hopeless, hopeless. We wouldn't achieve anything in a day, you know, because we'd think, well, yeah, we'll just have some wine, then we'll have a lie-in. You know, I much prefer this life where you're up early in the morning, you sort of seize the day mentality. And yes, it's busy, but I'm a person who thrives on busyness. Mm. I mean, I'm already panicking about them leaving. And what am I going to do? What am I going to do with myself then? so long. I know. Then. And so many different stages to go through. In fact, this feels like a good point, actually, because you talk about kind of raising boys and the challenges of that to meet today's experts. As, as we've discussed, you've got two boys amongst your, um, I was going to say throng of, I mean, anybody with more than two kids, I think, it, you know, it just feels <laughs> it's a gang. Like, yeah, your gang. And they were the first two. And so and I'm, my boy is about to leave home. So perhaps this is too late for me. I don't know. But we just felt like an expert on the show today because we get a lot of questions about this mm -hmm. about 
where boys are in the world, actually, because I often feel kind of sorry for boys because they seem to get tainted with a lot of stuff and, you know, their, their masculinity, where they, you know, are they supposed to be masculine? Are they supposed to kind of like adopt more kind of feminine tendencies? And so we have the perfect experts. Who have you got? We've got Yuju Asika, who is a writer who has written previously about how to bring your kids up without prejudice. And now she's written a book, which I think every parent of young boys will probably want to read, which is How to Raise Your Boys to Do Better, which I think we'd all agree is a good Right. Thing. Give me a copy right now. <laughs> Yuju, thank you for coming on The Midpoint. Thank you for having me. Tell us what motivated you to want to kind of venture into this area. I know you've written a lot as a feminist and you've written a lot, as I said before, about prejudice in society. What was it about boys in particular? Well, I'm a mum of two boys myself. I've got a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old. And so, you know, I'm kind of at that stage with you thinking, am I too late to fix whatever problems there are with my boys? Um, and I really wanted to investigate, like, you know, what are the challenges for boys these days? How difficult it is, as you said, to figure out what it means to be masculine. Can you embrace mm. your masculinity and still be a conscious, kind and decent person? And I really believe you can. And, you know, that's kind of the focus of the book. And so the book is exploring kind of I suppose at the beginning you talk about how you got to this position and Sarah Everard's murder actually was one of the things, wasn't it, that kind of precipitated a greater interest as well in this area because it was that thing, wasn't it, of no, actually don't tell all women to be more careful, tell your boys to be more supportive and to be more aware. So what I guess what Alex and I would probably want to know is the practical ways, because we feel we're doing that, but are there things we can do better? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one. Like you mentioned, the whole conversations happened around Sarah Everard and the focus on men and, you know, holding men accountable and then turning that focus on, I felt it as a mother very specifically, you know, how as a mum can I teach my sons to even care, care enough about women's safety, about the interactions that they have with their female friends. And, you know, a lot of it starts with just conversation. It's the same thing with my previous book, when you're talking to children about race, having these conversations, creating awareness and keeping that conversation going. And also just staying really, really in tune with you know, what your boys are talking about, how they engage with their friends, whether they have friends of the, you know, different genders. There's so many different things that you can do as a parent to sort of stay on top of it. Is it something that you are concerned, your boys are obviously very young still, is it something that you're kind of aware of in society, you know, that there is this, I think sometimes there's a tendency to demonise kind of yeah. all boys when situations mm. like that happen. And I guess when you are a mum of boys, like the three of us are, you do feel very protective of the way sometimes that they are, I don't know, I mean, there's sort of a blanket thing of, oh, you know, boys can be rough, they can be, you know, very naughty is a word that's used a lot with boys and I think we're lucky because we've got a younger little girl and so a lot of the practice around that is you know would you like somebody to do that to Annie be gentle with Annie and we're really lucky to have Annie as a girl that they really look after and protect but I think you know I mean, they've got lots of friends that are girls as well. I think it's as they grow older, maybe the problems start or maybe mm. we expect them to be a certain way. Mm. Charlie, my husband, and he won't mind me saying, he's quite kind of boy boy. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Quite alpha. He likes chopping wood. Mm -hmm. He likes fishing, all of that stuff, which is great. But I said, Charlie, it can't just be about that. It has to widen. They have to be gentle. They have to know how to be soft. They have to know how to express their feelings. He wasn't allowed to as a boy. We had a long conversation about it. So with our boys, it is about talking about feelings. It is about how Annie's affected by their rough play. You know, mm. and I mean, they are very young. They are four and six. But already I'm really aware of sometimes how boys get put into a box. Mm. You know, they're rough, um, they're naughty, they don't listen. Mm -hmm. And we are doing our best to try mm. and sort of widen that out and take them out of that box, you know. Yeah. As a mother of boy-girl twins, I think the thing that you said there that resonated actually, that kind of rough play you do, that, you know, boys 
I didn't do anything to, you know, to encourage that when they were little, you know, he just wanted to do stuff. And she went along with it. She loved yeah. the kind of, you know, right, what we're going to do is we're going to put pads on and run at each other, you know, or yes. we're going to. And, and but then equally, she would have him creating a course in the garden for the dogs to jump over and he would have to hold, you know, kind of because that was a thing she wanted to do. So they were quite good at exchanging their, you know, their different ideas like that. But equally, you know, you can't help that kind of, you know, there's a slight bias in that respect that you say, be careful with her. Yeah, know, be careful with her. As if she's her. going to break. As if she's a doll. <laughs> yeah. But then there's a good practice in that because it's about respecting women as well, isn't it? And mm. it is a fine line between treating her like a glass doll mm. and them as sort of the ruffians. It is a really hard balance and I think to strike. School, Yuju, um, you know, I noticed this the first school they went to when they were in reception. It's very feminized, isn't it? You know, sit on the mat, have a story. Well, my son did not want to sit on the mat. Neither of mine do. So already he was in trouble, you know, and that feeling. And I think there's a self-fulfilling prophecy you do for boys sometimes. Do Do you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have, you know, a whole chapter on education and what's happening with, there's a lot of conversation about boys and, you know, why they seem to be falling behind in education. And some of the solutions or ideas is this thing of, you know, is the classroom set up for the way a boy wants to sit down and concentrate? Is it set up for the way a boy wants to express himself physically? Are there enough break times? Um, You know, but also... Like you're talking about, you know, these biases that we come in with, we also do project a lot of our ideas and stories that we've inherited around boyhood and masculinity for generations. And we project them onto our boys. So we expect them to be rough and tumble and to not sit still and to not concentrate. And so it was really interesting for me because I interviewed quite a few different parents and experts for the book. And some of them, you know, one of them said to me, well, her boy was actually had very good fine motor skills, you know, and they always say, oh, boys don't develop fine motor skills very young, which said, well, her boy did. So it's about sort of creating space for all the different expressions of of boyhood, which can be absolutely anything. And, you know, that's really the focus of raising boys who do better Mm -hmm. is your boy can do anything outside of this box that you spoke about, which is a huge you know, challenge for for boys, like being rigid and stuck inside a box. It's called the man box. You know, mm. so, um, yeah. The thing that I take great comfort from with my, my boy is that Ruben is so open and talks about everything. You know, he wears his heart. Almost sometimes I'm like, okay, you can keep some stuff for yourself. Oh. But, you know, he wears his heart on his <laughs> an sleeve. An open book. Yeah, an open yeah. book completely. And I think that from a, from a mental health point of view is, is brilliant. And also from his kind of like exchanging ideas is good. Um, and I suppose we've been a, lucky, I'd say lucky in that respect, because he's not um, somebody mm-hmm. who keeps stuff to himself. But if you have got a boy, Yuju, who does seem to, you know, be reluctant to open up and have those conversations, what are your tips on that? Yeah, it's really difficult. You know, I'm fortunate with my boys as well. We have that same kind of open relationship and talk about anything. I think one of the things is just to be there, you know, to stay present. Like boys go through a a phase hormonally, actually, when they enter their teens. And, you know, it is a sort of an... A combination of the sort of hormones and what's going on with them mentally, like with their brains, where they can get really, really quiet. And, you know, one of the things you can do is just keep reaching out, but don't force it, you know, stay present. If your child doesn't want to talk, you know, try and look for opportunities, like maybe go for a walk and just see what comes up. One of the the people that I spoke to in the book, Dr. Karen Addison, she said that her son went through a phase like that and she basically would go up to his bedroom and he'd be sort of locked inside the bedroom and she would just sit down on the floor outside the bedroom and, you know, have a little conversation with him and eventually he would open up. So it can be difficult, but the main thing is just to to be there and Mm. know that it's usually a phase and it's really, really important to try and build that relationship because like you said, boys and men tend to keep stuff in a lot. What about also, you know, social media and the world that they're in projects a lot of stuff upon them you know and one of the conversations I'm thinking about is the one I've had with my son a few times about Andrew Tate for example and people like him you know Ruben completely sees through 
Andrew Tate, right, and understands that this this guy is kind of doing this for clicks. And there's a lot of, well, a lot of it, I'm sure he believes, but there's a lot of bravado as well in mm. the stuff that he's saying and he doesn't hold him on any pedestal. What if your son says something to you where they, they're starting to kind of be a follower of somebody who you would consider to have unconscionable views? How do you then try and turn it's almost like being kind of radicalized in an opinion isn't it that you feel is totally wrong and you know your teenager saying to you well this is what i believe and you know you've got a kind of scary isn't it yeah it is really scary yeah. because you know you because it's bigger than us yeah so how how do you how do you navigate that obviously you talk about social media i do and i also share in the book conversations that i've had with my sons around andrew tate and also how those conversations evolve because you know when i first heard about andrew tate i was like whoa who is this and then i mentioned it to my sons and they're kind of like mm. oh he's funny and so that's like all these alarm bells were going off in mm. there and i'm like he's mm. funny <laughs> so then yeah. for me it's really about challenging and when you're challenging you don't have to sort of go in like really heavy-handed and forceful and start lecturing you you know, sometimes I'm bad, you see, I'm bad <laughs> I am as well. If there's like a yeah, an agenda, right? Yeah, you can challenge with questions. You know, you can challenge. You know, Andrew Tate says this about women. You know, what do you think? Why do you think that? And then just keep that conversation going. And the main thing you want is to have that. I always say with kids, you know, leave the door open. So don't slam the door in their face by coming and sort of saying, oh, no, you can't do that. You can't follow him. You know, just leave the door open, ask questions and just stay aware, stay in tune with what your child, your son is listening to, what he's reading, how he's engaging. And hopefully as you have more conversations, they'll evolve that's what's happened for us in our house as well mm. so did you finish writing the book feeling kind of optimistic for young men and young boys what did you come away feeling at the end Yuji? yeah I came away feeling um, a lot of things I mean it's a huge topic and there are so many different elements and challenges but the subtitle of the book is a hopeful guide for a new generation and I really do believe in that hope and that comes not just from sort of listening to experts and looking at the wider society, but also talking to my my sons and talking to their friends. And I had my sons interview their friends as well. And I know a lot of their circle. And these are sort of great boys. Like you said, masculinity tends to get a bad rap and quite deservedly so in some respects. But on the whole, when you look at these individual boys, you know, they're great, they're decent, they're compassionate, they're funny you know teenage boys especially are hilarious <laughs> they're full of banter but they're hilarious so um yeah, yeah I felt I felt quite optimistic good well that is good and that is a good place I think for us to to say thank you to you for joining us on the midpoint and of course if people want to know more and it's a big book as well with lots of interesting takes and advice in it then go and read uh, raising boys to do better thank you Yuji. thanks so much Well, a thing we didn't talk about there with Yuju about boys is the energy that it takes, obviously. I, th I think boys do take a lot more energy because they that thing about a boy being like a dog, you know, you, you've got to run them all day and make sure they're fed. Um, you're going to find that when they hit their teens, you're going to find that a big thing because feeding one teenager, Alex, has been a monumental effort. And you've got Charlie as well. Obviously, I've got Kenny, but, you know, Kenny, Kenny was a bit older. Well, he's 51 now, but obviously he was on that kind of I'm going to start fasting thing, you know, as people do in midlife. Oh, fine, so, yeah. yeah. So he wasn't as bad to be. But Reuben to feed has been extraordinary. Are you ready for the amount you are going to have to have in your fridge? Yeah. Well, we already call Ted three bowl Teddy. <laughs> right. So he's on three bowls of cereal. So he is six and a half. And I think the testosterone is starting to kick in. Really? Because Ted's always been a big eater. I mean, he follows his dad, 100%. But you can see the change in him, you know. He's really? now just, there's not enough snacks in the fridge, <laughs> in the cupboard. 
some the other little boy though, Kit, our middle one, he survives on fresh air. <laughs> and I think that's the interesting thing with boys. They tend to be lumped together, but actually our two are mm. so super different from yeah. each other. But Charlie just said the other day, imagine our shopping bill as these boys grow. And the more sport they do, yeah. the more they want to eat. Yeah, good. You're gonna you're gonna be working for a and very I mean, long Annie, time. And Annie, to be fair, can put it away as well. <laughs> so I'm gonna be working for a long time, you Gabby. Are, indeed. And on work, you are in this position now where you are the constant on the one show because ever since Matt left there's been a kind of ro- rolling kind of roster of presenters you mainly work with um, Roman Kemp and yes, JJ and JJ and, yeah, uh, and Roland there, yeah. yeah and you are the, the the figurehead really of the show you and you said before you know oh I still feel they might come along and take me away you must feel now an incredible confidence and having those three kids and giving, you know, all you do to them and running that show how you do as well. You must now feel in the in the kind of power that you have and exude. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if because of the type of person I am, I don't know whether I'll ever feel 100 percent safe, which I think is sometimes a good mm. thing. But it's odd, isn't it? Because when I started and I was thinking about this just the other night, when I started they were like, oh, yeah, you know, that young girl from Wales. And now I feel like the matriarch because <laughs> Roman, as he pointed out very kindly, good old Roman Kemp, he said, I could be oh like your, you know, like illegitimate son that you had at like 14 in the valleys. I'm like, all right, Roman, what you're saying is I could oh, be your on, mother. Roman, he's stretching it there for I know. God's sake. But he has got a point. So I've you know, gone from being kind of the, the young newbie one. to yeah. kind of the, you know, well, the, the man figure. Doing sport, there's nothing more kind of uh, hits you in the face than when you're, I'm prepping and researching. So I started out at Sky when I was 22. I was the same age as all the footballers, you know. Yeah. I, I go through and kind of like, I'm still the same age. Some of them get to my 30s and then, oh, you get some young managers coming in, you know, in the 30s. And then now I could genuinely be the grandmother to some of those Premier League footballers because they're they're 17 and 18 years old, you yeah. know. So and you've seen them kind of come through and then have sons, you know, who start to play football because Alfinger Haaland's son, Erling Haaland, as you probably heard of his name, you know, yeah. is this huge Premier League star. So yeah, sport's pretty cruel like that, Alex. Yeah, um, and I think you know, obviously, I mean sport is very specific, isn't mm. it? But in terms of telly in the in the wider sense i think we are in a luckier position now oh, yeah. to where we were if we'd where been in 30 oh, years we would ago, be well we'd, we'd be, be looking for plan b <laughs> we would have been we'd be we in plan been b off. we'd be in plan b <laughs> we'd be very much in plan b but i don't feel like that no. anymore i don't feel again that age is now a problem no you know, which is a nice place to be. I still think, obviously, ability's got a lot to do with, mm. and I need to sharpen my pencils See, I on don't a daily think it's basis age but... <laughs> anymore. But I do feel there is um, sometimes an obsession with the next thing. You know, and yeah. who's the hot new yeah. thing? And even though you know you can do the job just as well as the hot new thing, maybe better because of the hours of experience mm. you've got. There's still a fascination with new things, and it is why we buy new shoes, and it's why we buy new clothes. It's not because we need to keep our feet protected. We just like new things, don't but we? But when you want to be comfy, what do you go? back to your old shoes the old shoes oh thank see. you so we're the old shoes so, oh my god now he's really <laughs> this is a good clip for the uh, for the advert for this episode <laughs> you've just said it we're the, old shoes. we're the old shoes but you but you do get something of a um, a comfort i think is what you're saying from somebody you know you can trust and we come back to that saying a safe pair of hands a safe pair of hands i mean they used to say flying hours didn't they yeah you've got all these flying hours but only really smart people know that flying hours count for a lot. Yeah. You know, there's 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 some people who think, yeah, well, you know, what are you doing though? You're just reading. And that's where the mistakes happen, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Being present. It's a lot more than you yeah. know, it's a lot more than that. And and I and you, we we both still on a daily basis still put a lot into each single appearance we make on television because you know that's well it's part it's the preparation is key it's like anything isn't it the well, more what's that saying chris evans taught me that this. um fail to prepare prepare to fail prepare to fail and he is a fly by the seat of his pants kind of guy oh, he seems like he is but underneath all of that yeah. is very much meticulous planning i'm glad you mentioned him because um he's actually written about his kind of midlife crisis and oh, which uh, one I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and you used to work with him on the one show of course and you've remained a really good friend Yes. Yeah. Um, and he 
is doing absolutely everything he wants to in terms of his broadcasting career right now. Obviously, he's got his breakfast show. He doesn't particularly want to do loads of no. telly. He loves his life right now. Mm -hmm. Is he a good role model for you, you think, in a broadcasting sense in terms of how he's handled his career? I think he is always somebody I look back on and think, my goodness, I probably do my job the way I do it because of him. Because as you say, on the surface, he's super fun and he is. And he is, and he's zany, and there's nobody really quite like him on mm. the radio, I think. And he revolutionised TV. He did, but he's complex, because under all that, there is a lot of thought. Mm. Everything is very purposefully done. He doesn't like a rehearsal, but that's because he's read the book, he's, does, he's mm. done the research, he knows exactly, he'll never dry up because he knows the subjects and the people that he's talking to so well because his research is so thorough. Mm. So there was a lot of really good lessons. I remember the first time I met him, once more, I was driving my lovely trusty Mini through Soho without any clue where I was going. And he said, meet me in the Groucher. I was like, well, what is that? Is that a coffee shop? What, what is it? And then I realized it was this sort of swanky yeah. club that of course still exists. And in I went and he said, right, let's have some chips and champagne. I thought, this is brilliant. This is the best Friday ever. And I can't believe that I'm sitting here with a guy I've watched for years on TFI. And he was lovely and we immediately You need got to write a book, you know, Alex, before oh, you forget all your anecdotes. Well, this is the funny thing. So he said, right, will you do Friday night with me? And like an absolute loser, I said, no, because I'm going to do Monday to Thursday, you see. And then at the weekends, I'm going to go back to Cardiff. <laughs> and he said, sorry, what? I said, yeah, I've got it all mapped out. So I'll come. But then on the weekends, I'm going to go home to my friends. I said, so, so I've just asked you whether you co-host a show with me and, and your answer is no. Am I right? I said, yeah. I said, it's just not the right time. He said, wow, right. He said, well, we'd have a laugh. I said, yeah, well, I mean, maybe we could do one or two, you know, but, but as a rule, I'd like to be home at the weekends. And he was just like incredulous. And obviously I didn't realize what sort of opportunity he was presenting here, you know? And he said, well, look, if I write about you in my book, will you do Friday? Let's do six weeks as a trial. He said, I, mm, I said, is your book going to do well? And he said, well, I don't know, hopefully. I said, he said, what's all this? He said, normally I'd expect a yes, that would yeah. be. Yeah, you know. I'll bite your hand off, yeah. So anyway, we had another glass of champagne. And then I said, all right, then, well, you put me in the book and I'll do six weeks with you. And, you know, from the first week, we just got on brilliantly. And even more so with Chris's wife, Tash, who's yeah. just the absolute a force, the oil that, you know, keeps that machine in that house running. She's a force of nature. She's such a lovely, lovely woman. And we've remained friends, you know, but looking back now, I think, what was I even thinking? I'd worked all this time for a career in broadcasting. Chris Evans is going, do you want to do a show? And I say, no, because I'm going home <laughs> at the weekend to Cardiff. Mary, your mum would have been livid. Oh, livid. <laughs> what are you talking about? We are here now in, in this midlife period with more written about this. I've, it feels to me than ever before in terms of longevity and how to live your uh, healthiest life. You talked about that at the very beginning. If you eat well, if you don't drink too much alcohol, if you mm. exercise. How are you doing on all those pillars, the things that you know you should be doing to be as, as healthy as you can? Well, I think what drives me is the fact that we have got three young children and I feel for them, I need to do the best to preserve myself. Mum and dad have always been healthy grown up. We've always eaten, you know, a balanced diet, but more so Charlie and I are focused on that. Mm -hmm. He also wasn't very well last year. Mm -hmm. So his How diet, is he now? He's good. Yeah, mm -hmm. he's in a way better place now to where we were a year ago mm -hmm. but diet has played a huge part in that yeah i mean you know it was as simple as we always eat relatively well but he's quite into nutrition mm -hmm. so um so what I, things did he want to change then about his diet that the well, family's adopted i think it was a way for him as well to sort of fill his days in a sense when he wasn't mm -hmm. feeling very well and he decided to take on this kind of role of right well you know we've got the medication but I'm going to see what else I can do to help mm -hmm. myself and he used to be a chef so cooking and food is very much something that he you know loves mm -hmm. and it's a big you know brings him a lot of joy so I'm lucky he cooks most meals 
But I say also, it's the glory job <laughs> because nobody says, well, oh, you stack that dishwasher so well because that's my job. That's why I cook, though. You yeah, see. Ah, see, so you've got the glory job. There you go. So he, he does all the cooking. So, But we eat really well. Lots of pulses, lots of greens, lots of vegetables. And this thing, you know, which was news to me five or ten a day mm. isn't enough it's no. the variety the variety the rainbow plate the rainbow eat the rainbow yeah i mean i say it on loop to my children eat the rainbow and they're like what does that mean are Mama? they good at eating the rainbow they are yeah. i mean ted will literally eat this table <laughs> in front of him he will eat anything as will annie kit not so much but you know charlie make, makes all their meals which is brilliant so they eat really well i mean don't get me wrong Annie was having sugar at six months. I mean, Ted didn't even see sugar until he was three. <laughs> Third the child run. syndrome. Annie, she was like, hmm, that twister lolly looks nice. Good, have it. Well, I tell you what's coming down the track because my, my kids now at 17 say um, things to me like, oh, they're appreciative of the fact that they just didn't have loads of sugar at home when they were little. But there was a period where they made me feel like I was the worst mother in the world because every other mother apparently is mainlining sugar into their children apart from me. And mum, we've been to houses where they have sweet drawers just full of sweets, mum. And ours is full of um, rice cakes. And um, <laughs> and I just kind of stuck to my guns on it. And I said, well, yeah. I'm not bringing their kids up. I'm bringing you up. So, you know, and but, now they go, actually, yeah. we'll do the same with our kids. But now... Yeah, yeah, they will at some point. They will say, you know, yeah. oh, hang on, or I, I mean, when they go out, they have a nice scream or whatever. When they're little, you know, they get it's it's. But it should be a treat, it not not a, a norm, shouldn't it? It is quite. I mean, some days it goes better than others. I mean, yeah, that's the truth about it. I mean, we've been known to be on holiday, and Ted somehow has eaten three ice creams. Yeah, because no. there'll be one during the day, then there'll be one yeah. that comes as a pudding with yeah. his meal, and then there'll be something that his cousin has given him. <laughs> they're I'm on like, holiday. You know what? It's fine. Also, flying with children. I mean, you know, sometimes oh. sometimes only a bag of Haribos is going to work, isn't it? When you're stuck on a kind of piece of tarmac somewhere in a hot country and you can't get off a plane or, you know, they're, they're there for bribes. But, you know, it sounds like with Charlie's attitude towards food and yeah. nutrition, you've got that bit sorted. Do you have time to exercise? So I've just restarted, Gabby. Now, you being the queen, sometimes, <clears throat> and I'll tell your lovely listeners this, sometimes I've been known to watch you on Instagram whilst eating a biscuit and a cup of tea, thinking, God, I really need to start doing that. And Charlie will come along and be like, look at Gabby. And he's like, God, that is amazing. And I'm like, you yeah, know, I'm going to start next week. But I actually have started. So what have you started doing? So I'm running. Very good. Um, I used to love running. Yeah. And I sort of stopped between Kit and Annie because three was a game changer, yeah. to be fair. And I just couldn't find the time. And even still now, if somebody said you can spend the morning with Kit going to feed the ducks, or you could go to a Pilates class, I'm always going to choose Kit. Because mm. I'm really aware that in a few years, they'll all be in mm. school. And then the mornings will be mine again. But mm. for now, it, they have to come first. But equally, I think it is important I feel so much better mm. after running, just being outside. Energising, isn't it, as well? And for me, I think a lot of it is nature. Mm. And JJ and Roman constantly take the piss out of me, Gabby. Because yesterday I was excited about this lavender field that we might go to because it's in bloom. They were like, sorry, what? Is that your idea of a day out? I was like, yeah, it is. A cup of tea in a lavender field. What could be nicer? <laughs> And that's where I am. And yeah. I'm really happy. But nature is also one of the things that a lot of the books that I'm reading about longevity, it's one of the, the pillars about being outside, being in nature and what you get from that in terms of the serotonin and how that makes you obviously feel very relaxed. It's really, it's really important. So and I think it's the, um, for me as well, I like watching the seasons change. Mm. That passing of time doesn't fill me with dread. It's quite a nice sort of sense of calm routine the way things are supposed to be i remember in the pandemic you know despite what was going on and when we had that really hard winter mm. the the awful bit the, you know, was, after the christmas that yeah they the third them, lockdown the third and it was really cold but despite that the buds still appeared on the trees and everything did move forward and i've i don't know getting older i've got this new sense of appreciation of nature i just like what it does for us and likes what it gives us as a family i mean again you know the boys are like oh where were you this weekend what field were you in but that's what we love doing with the children you know we, we are back to basics yeah. you know charlie's a big believer in that and you know 
yeah. his Kiwi roots. He's oh, trying to kind of much. You know, bring I into play. I want to teach the boys to fish, um, always out on the bikes together, just playing in streams and chucking stones. I mean, our boys will throw stones for an hour, which frankly is ideal because <laughs> I'll sit there, you know, breathing in all the fresh air and getting the vitamin D and it's just a lovely afternoon, yeah. you know, they would prefer to be in a theme park, I think, if they were given the option, but they're not. No, we well, keep it simple while they're little. They only need to go to one once. That was my rule. <laughs> Love, I'll have to. This is what I'll be thinking of. Be more Gabby. I remember when we were in America once and we'd been to Euro Disney a few years before and we were driving from San Diego to L.A. And you pass Anaheim, which is where the original Disneyland is. Yeah. And I saw the signs and I had to look at Kenny to make sure he didn't alert anybody in the back, i.e. Reuben and Lois, to the fact yeah. that we were literally going to drive past it. And uh, he looked at me and went, I went like, don't, don't say a word. And we drove past and he, later on he said, I can't believe he did. I said, well, did you want to go in there today? You know, or did you want to go to a beach and swim in the sea with them? Yeah. And, you know, and he was like, I oh, know, but they'll find out one day that you, <laughs> you drove but past it. No, well, now, if they bother to listen to yeah. this, which, okay. yeah, um, is unlikely. No, they don't know. And they don't, they didn't have any, you know, kind of repercussions from it, did they? So, yeah, um, exactly. yeah. And this is the thing. So Charlie's got this big thing about um, he's kind of a planet warrior, you know. So because his family are in New Zealand and we have to fly there, mm. we have to offset, Gabby. Brilliant. Our carbon footprint. Excellent. By staying in the UK. For holidays. So that's the big thing. Yeah, but you, you go to Wales a lot on we holiday. Do. And so, West Wales is stunning well, we shouldn't tell too many people because exactly. i don't want it to get too busy but pembrokeshire exactly and in the right weather there is nowhere like the uk in general we've got so many mm. brilliant places scotland the west coast anglesey norfolk i mean we, we're just well, we don't need to go around I mean, the whole we coast are spoiled, aren't we? we are we're really spoiled i mean and the boys and annie it's like moths to a flame when they see the sea or a river that they are in. super happy in yeah you know, it's and it's holidays that i remember growing up so yeah as long as we get away with it, that's what we do. And I think it helps us and our own mental health. You know, it's that eating healthy, bit of exercise. You're smashing the midpoint, I think, <laughs> I Alex know. Jones. You are. And uh, it's been so lovely having you up here. And the masseuse is coming in now. Right. And so she can just bring a bit of herbal tea. That would we've be got nice. some herbal tea coming. I'll get Kenny to get there on the case for that. We're going to light. We're going to light some uh, lemongrass candles. <laughs> And all is well in the world. Oh, it's been an absolute joy. I loved it. Shall we go drink that gin? Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. It was so lovely having Alex over and she didn't even complain about the fact that the podcast room was about 85 degrees. And it was also a bonus that she brought her own Welsh gin, which we didn't consume that morning. But I have had a few lovely cold glasses of since. I love her attitude to life, that kind of we are where we are, and that youthful energy is very infectious, so I hope it powers you through your day as well. It was brilliant chatting to Yuju Asika as well. Her books, Raising Boys Who Do Better and Bringing Up Race, How to Raise a Kind Child in a Prejudiced World, are well worth checking out. Be sure to share this episode with your loved ones and leave me a review if you enjoyed it. I've got more wonderful guests coming your way over the next few weeks, so hit follow wherever you listen to your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. A big thanks then to Alex and Yuju Spiritland Productions for producing and, of course, to you for listening. I'll catch you next time. Listener.